Welcome to Dead Men's Donuts and the Society of Survivors, the podcast. I'm Grace Baudino, and this is episode six. Um, so yeah, I am technically on shift today, and it's been kind of a horror show, so... I'm not really sure what to say or how to start. Um, first of all, I was I have new interviews that I have recorded, and the one that I wanted to do for this episode is really long. Um, I'm in the process of trying to edit it down, but I also, I mean, the story is pretty involved, and I want to give it its due. Um, I don't want to edit it down to the point that it's not really the story anymore. And that's proving to be something of a chore. It's a little hard. So um, that's that's why I don't really have a new interview for you this week. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a momentous task. But what I do have is a, well, first of all, I have new recording equipment. Yay! So hopefully sound will be a little bit more stable and hearable from here on out. Um, But also uh, this week I have, well, if you check our Instagram, Dead Men's Donuts, uh, that's dead.mens.donuts on Instagram, you can see a picture of yours truly standing in the scene of a hoarded house You know, I really thought that I had a cute outfit on yesterday, and that's the thing about wearing cute outfits to work when you do have this job. Um, You end up sifting through piles of trash in a pair of rubber turnout boots. So, um, yeah, if you want to see that, it's it's available for your viewing pleasure. Um, Also, this week I have a essay that I actually performed this essay. I read it for an a live audience, but the people who put on that show couldn't find the recording. So I recorded it for you, you wonderful you, on my brand new special fancy clear recording equipment. And, you know, I I opted to do this story because, I don't know, um, with all of the civil unrest that's going on right now and the coronavirus, not to mention the fact that it's just fucking hot outside right now. And that is a difficult thing because it just, it's the, it's the thermal icing on the shit cake. Um, things are garbage, but when it's hot, they're hot garbage. Um, (laughs) anyway, I'm seeing a lot of suicides. We're seeing a lot of suicides at work and suicide is a touchy subject. People don't want to talk about it. People don't want to think about it. And there's a lot of shame associated with it, but I wrote this whole essay about suicides. And it might sound like I'm making fun of suicide, and I'm not, um, because I don't think that it's a joke, but I kind of view suicide this way I view every hard thing in this world. And that, you know, if you don't laugh at it, you're gonna cry, so. Um... (sighs) You might as well laugh at death because I promise he's laughing at you. Trademark, trademark, trademark. Um, So yeah, uh, this week's episode, episode six, is going to be the essay that I wrote about suicide. And that essay is called That Crazy Bitch. So 
without further ado, here it is, that crazy bitch. That crazy bitch. In retrospect, I'm not sure if it was a good or bad thing that I answered the phone that afternoon. I was new at the job and easily overwhelmed. Despite having worked my internship for a year and a half, I was quickly learning that internships don't really teach you how to make your own calls, write up your own reports, eat your own words, or stand by your own decisions come hell or high water. Being an intern meant you always had a handler nearby to bail your ass out if things started going south. As a real bona fide medical examiner, there was no bailing. It was sink or swim, and I had to find my own way through days like this one was turning out to be. It was bad. I mean, true, unless any given situation has gone fatally wrong, I wouldn't even be there. But that day, right out of the gate, every scenario that I had encountered had crazy dangling off it like tinsel on a Christmas tree. To begin with, early morning had found me standing on the front lawn of a house where a 20-year-old kid with brain cancer had just been found dead by his stepfather. He had called his wife, the kid's mom, and rather than just tell her what was going on or maybe go get her himself, the guy just told her to come home right away. When she asked him what was up, he refused to tell her. So I had to be the one to drop that bomb on her when she pulled into her driveway. I had also just notified a young woman of her estranged father's death. No one had her address, so we had to call her rather than do the notification in person. She was devastated and had engaged in the time-honored coping mechanism of getting completely shit-faced as quickly as possible. Once thoroughly inebriated, she started drunk-dialing dispatch and demanding to talk to me again. My pager had gone off four times while I had been with the cancer patient's mom. I returned the first few calls and reiterated as much information as I could. Each time she seemed to understand, but then in 15 minutes or so she would call again, having either decided that I didn't really mean what I'd said, or she was so drunk she couldn't recall this conversation had already happened. That was my morning. Crazy. I began my afternoon on my knees trying to scrape a car accident victim's brain matter off the ground in a wheat field when my personal cell phone buzzed at my hip, announcing that Christina, one of my closest friends back home in Arizona, wanted to talk. It struck me as a little weird. Christina is one of those people who communicates exclusively through text. A phone call meant either something was marvelously good or catastrophically bad. And that's how I came to be standing in a wheat field with the frontal lobe of a stranger's brain in my left hand and Christina on the phone in my right hand, howling that she wanted to die. She went on from there, sobbing that she wanted me to get one of my, quote, doctor friends, unquote, to prescribe her enough of any sufficiently lethal medication with which she could overdose and kill herself. It was a ludicrous request. That much goes without saying. But the guttural smearing of her words indicated Christina was spectacularly drunk and had birthed this plan with the insidious cooperation of most likely a bottle of vodka. And since I know from experience that everything seems possible with vodka, I declined to tell her how absurd this plan was. I also thought better of saying something akin to, are you fucking stupid or do you think I'm fucking stupid? Instead, I said, Christina... I can't do that. You know I can't do that. What the hell is going on? 
What followed was an oily black tornado of self-loathing, hopelessness, and rage. I listened for a few seconds before interrupting and telling Christina to give the phone to her mother, who was, by Christina's report, in the next room. Instead, Christina hung up on me, effectively thwarting any chance I had of actually helping her. If the situation had been different, I would have simply called 911 and had an ambulance dispatched to her home, except for the fact that Christina wasn't at home. She was on vacation visiting her family, and I had absolutely no idea where they lived. The only thing I could tell an emergency dispatcher was that my very best friend in all the world was having a liquor-fueled meltdown somewhere in the continental United States, and could they please find her for me? Not so that we could in any way interrupt her madness, but rather so I could have a chance to kick the ever-living shit out of her before she succeeded. The fact is, I've learned through my sadly extensive experience with suicide that you can't talk someone out of killing themselves once they have genuinely decided it's what they're going to do. You might as well tell them not to pull the pin out of a grenade they've already thrown. As a paramedic, I was called to innumerable suicide attempts. As a brand new deputy medical examiner, I had already been called to innumerable suicide successes, and I had definitely discovered that suicide didn't bring out the best in me. It may sound strange, but I've known some people who are great with suicide. Those people become counselors, therapists, pastors. I've seen those people cut the right wires on that bomb. They know the magical combination that opens the door to hope and happiness in the mind and heart of a suicidal person. I've never been able to do that. I just get angry. Now, to be clear, I'm a big fan of death. I won't deny it. I think death is a great idea. I found death to be a quirky, comical, tragic, fascinating, and deeply philosophical guy. I've also found death to be merciful and thoughtless, vicious and gentle, but above all, I've found death to be absolutely necessary. I think death keeps us honest, or as honest as human beings are capable of being. As a rule, I find people to be a haphazard parade of moral degenerates. Left to our unbridled appetites and all the time in the world to indulge them, I think we'd become blind, cruel, unapologetic consumers you know, even more than we already are. If there were no ending to our story, I wonder how many of us would feel pressed to achieve anything great or noble. We'd simply be mired in ennui, constantly seeking out the next depraved thrill just to set any one day apart from the next. No pressure, no urgency, no fuss, no purpose. What impetus would there be to do anything when we knew we'd always have another crack at it tomorrow or the next day or the next? Death is crucial to having a good life. My opinion of suicide, however, is another matter entirely. Suicide is a crazy bitch. Suicide is death's bug-eyed, batshit cousin who no one wants to admit they invited to the party. Suicide is that aggravating psycho chick your buddy is dating that you can't stand. You know the one. You walk into the local bar and see him there with that evil twat hanging around him like a swarm of flies. Her dirty clothes are always falling off of her and makeup is melting down her face. She goes on and on about eternity and sorrow and the meaninglessness of it all, moaning like a chilly wind and bumming cigarettes off everyone. She's always eating everyone else's french fries, borrowing money and promising to pay it all back, but she never does. You wonder why he doesn't just lose that girl, but for reasons you can't understand, he just keeps messing around with her. 
That's suicide. She brings nothing but pain, resentment, and humiliation, and yet people just can't seem to let her go. They think their relationship with her is darkly romantic or poetically tragic, but have no doubt she makes a fool out of everyone who touches her. You can't win. I have tons of stories I could tell to illustrate my point, but for the sake of nostalgia, let's go all the way back to my paramedic career. Part one. No one in the ER gives a dump. I remember one night when I was a newbie paramedic. That is to say, before I came to terms with the fact that I was better with dead people than living ones. My partner and I had just dropped a patient off at the local ER. While my partner was flirting with a nurse, I wandered back to the ambulance bay to clean up the rig. As I walked out the doors, I discovered a young man laying across the front steps of the ER like a sacrificial goat offered to this mighty concrete temple of modern medicine. I also noted a running car parked askew across the spaces reserved for ambulances. A sizzle of alarm wiggled through me as I cautiously approached the inert form on the pavement. I nudged his elbow with my boot. Dude, um, you can't park there? I uttered lamely, not exactly sure how else to initiate the are-you-dead conversation. The guy's arm flopped loose from his coat, and upon inspecting it, I realized that his hand was sticky with blood. I dropped to my knees beside him, my heart suddenly dancing like a marionette in my throat. I grabbed the man by his shirt and yanked him into a seated position. Then I commenced pulling at his clothes, shouting, Where are you hits? Where are you hits? And I have to say, I really got off on the sound of my own voice, saying lines like I had heard on shows like CSI and Law and Order. Where are you hits? I shouted. God damn, I sound cool, I thought. The young man didn't respond. His eyes remained closed and his head lolled limply back and forth. He flopped down on the concrete as I tossed him aside and ran for the ER doors. There's a dump in the ambulance bay, I called to the triage nurse as I grabbed a stretcher and dashed back out. It only occurred to me later that my announcement could have easily been interpreted to mean that there was a big steaming pile of human excrement in the ambulance bay, and that had that been the case, I could have been referring not only to the unconscious guy, but also to any number of my co-workers. However, since I had seized the stretcher as I made that declaration, the ER staff understood me to mean that the victim of either a shooting or a stabbing had been dumped at the hospital doors. Assault injuries constitute mandatory police reports by the hospital staff. As a result, many dodgy characters simply drive through the ambulance bay and kick their wounded compatriots out of the door as they speed off, rather than answer any questions about how a shooting or a stabbing occurred. I had never actually seen this happen, though. It was a heady experience being the one who actually made the discovery. When the nurses and I wheeled our patient into the front room of the ER, everyone was frenzied with anticipation. The trauma surgeons had been paged, transfusion blood had been readied, even the wizened old attending physician had wandered out of his office to take in the spectacle. Nurses were peeling layers of clothing off the guy, and the whole company was poised, waiting to hear what injuries he had. But when the last shirt had been sliced off his torso, there was nothing there. He didn't have a mark on him. Except for the twin horizontal lacerations on each wrist that were barely deep enough to draw out a laughably meager display of blood. Everyone exhaled and glanced at one another with quizzical expressions. The wizened old attending physician harumphed, turned, and meandered off to resume napping on his office couch. 
For a few moments, everyone was dead silent until the nurse who had been rifling through the patient's genes erupted with, oh, for fuck's sake. She was holding the patient's cell phone and had just happened across his last few text messages. Apparently, he had sent a mass text message to everyone he knew. This text message announced to the world that he had just slashed his wrists and was now driving himself to the hospital to die. Every eye turned from that nurse to the naked young man laying on the hospital bed. His closed eyes fluttered as he attempted to ascertain what effect this revelation had on those of us gathered around him. He had been playing possum the whole time and was now trying to figure out what had happened to the ER staff who, until that moment, had seemed so concerned with his survival. The trauma room went as sour as spoiled milk. Words like moron and idiot were grumbled in stage whispers as resuscitation equipment was angrily discarded. No one even glanced back at the patient whose eyes were now wide open, glancing around, wondering why suddenly no one seemed to care if he lived or died. He was unceremoniously wheeled out of the trauma room and stowed in a curtained-off corner where no one would be troubled by him. My partner stomped off to retrieve the keys from the patient's car, which was still sitting in the ambulance bay. As his first few family members were allowed to visit him, the flailing mob was just descending on the patient in a fluttering fall of concern, and my partner walked by his bed, flung the keys into the patient's lap, and told him that he needed to move his fucking car in case there was an actual emergency. Part 2. Shamed to Death That's not the worst of it. Paramedics are notoriously disgusted with suicide attempts. Where someone of a more empathetic disposition might view a suicidal patient as an unfortunate soul in need of hope and inspiration, paramedics often regard suicides with merciless disdain. One paramedic I used to work with held this stance more fiercely than anyone else I'd ever met. His name was Keith. Keith was one of those Lone Ranger cowboy medics for whom the vast universe of human suffering was a virtual playground. Don't get me wrong, Keith was a super nice guy, but he was also charismatically insane in a fashion similar to that of a death cult leader. Keith fervently despised suicide attempts. Where I would get annoyed with a whiny, I wish I were dead patient, Keith would get downright brutal. He was of the opinion that anyone who attempted suicide was a manipulative, petulant attention monger. He believed that having the police and paramedics show up and lavish attention on them was positively reinforcing destructive behavior and pandering to their theatrical narcissism. Therefore, in Keith's opinion, the best way to deal with people who had attempted suicide was to take a negative reinforcement route. He would utterly ooze with contempt and abuse throughout his interaction with them. That way, in Keith's mind, the next time these people found themselves staring into the echoing void of their own soul, the next time they were poised over the bathroom sink with a razor in hand, the next time they gazed into a glass of vodka with a fistful of pills hovering over their open mouth, they would pause. They would reconsider. They would put down that razor, spit out those pills, and instead decide to live. Not because they realized they had so much to look forward to, nor because they understood the far-reaching pain that would resonate through their loved ones' lives. Rather, in that sacred split second that marked the moment between life and death, that person would suddenly remember, man, 
The last time I did this, the paramedics were total dicks to me. Keith's theory was farcical at best, but that's why he would have made a great death cult leader. To hear him explain it, it almost made sense. And Keith believed this so fiercely that he would put his theory into practice at any opportunity. The first time I saw Keith working this angle, we had been dispatched to a suicide attempt in which a man had been found sitting in his running car inside a closed garage. It was his garage, but it also wasn't his garage. The garage was attached to the house where, until recently, the dude had lived with his wife. The two of them were elbow deep in a particularly ugly divorce. Our patient, the husband, was forlorn with heartbreak and also feeling pretty goddamn vindictive. As he had lost the house in the divorce, his remedy was to render the domicile uninhabitable by killing himself in it. Not only that, he also left a note testifying that he had been driven to this act by his whore of a wife. These details were fed to me and Keith via radio by the policemen who were already on the scene. I noticed Keith thoughtfully drumming his fingers on the dashboard and just slightly rocking back and forth in his seat. I didn't know it yet, but this behavior meant Keith was already evolving a plan. Upon our arrival at the home, we learned the rest of the story. It turns out that this man's wife didn't have a chance to discover his corpse in the garage. Instead, their teenage son had come home early from school and found his father's spiteful note. The son then proceeded to discover his father, still very much alive, sitting in his running car in the garage attempting to asphyxiate himself. The boy had opened the garage door, called 911, and could now look forward to someday describing the whole scarring event to a psychiatrist. After receiving this news, we found our patient sitting on the curb under the vigilant watch of an uncomfortable-looking police officer who had obviously drawn the short straw. The patient wept shamefacedly as we loaded him into the ambulance, but that didn't deter Keith from his scheme in the slightest. In fact, he seemed even more eager to lay into this guy. Man, Keith sighed in mock amazement. He shook his head as he gazed down at the guy. Can you imagine finding your dad like that? I can't believe that poor kid being subjected to something like that. Imagine. How would he have felt if you'd actually been dead when he found you? What do you think that would have done to him? Man, how can you be so selfish? Keith hissed the last word, making it sound like a sword being unsheathed. The guy hunched over on the stretcher, tears still falling into his lap. He didn't offer any protest or explanation, just absorbed the beating with resigned despair. I, however, winced. I imagined I would hear that same hissing sound as our professional heads would roll later on that night when Keith's performance was brought to the attention of our supervisor. Or we might hear it from the demons sent to drag us off to hell for berating a defenseless patient. Keith, on the other hand, went about the rest of our shift with a serene air of accomplishment and purpose, confident he'd really made a positive difference in someone's life. Part 3. The Wiener Dog Incident Again, I was working with Keith. I was supposed to be running the calls that night while Keith just drove the ambulance, but as soon as we were dispatched to a suicide attempt, Keith started again, with the finger drumming and the seat rocking. Despite the arrangement of duties, I was more or less aware that this was going to be his party, and I would just be serving drinks. 
Keith wanted to run this call. Bad. Our patient was a young college girl who had a history of suicide attempts and hadn't been heard from for a couple of days. Someone had called the police to initiate a welfare check. The unfortunate police officer dispatched to check on this girl's condition found the front door of the residence unlocked and our patient lying on her bed with a plastic bag secured over her head. He also discovered two purebred wiener dogs who were ecstatically happy to meet him and expressed their delight by leaping about the room and peeing on his shoes. For lack of anything better to do, the officer had torn the plastic bag off the girl's head. In doing so, he also discovered that she was not only still alive, but also really stoned on Valium. Her plan had been to place the bag over her head and then fall so deeply asleep that she wouldn't awaken and or lose her nerve when she started to suffocate. The fact that the officer had miraculously walked into her apartment sheer minutes after the bag had been secured in place was coincidental bordering on contrived. Upon hearing this detail, both Keith and I strongly suspected the girl had called 911 herself in order to summon a supporting cast for her staged melodrama. But whatever. The officer at the scene had doubtless considered this as well, yet still dutifully called for an ambulance and then stayed with the patient until we got there. Judging by his facial expression, our arrival couldn't have happened too soon. The young woman had the personality of a car alarm. Upon realizing she wasn't dead, she commenced heaping insults upon the officer who had just saved her life. The officer told us this with an expression of astonishment, and his hands splayed out in front of him as though he was begging for absolution. Meanwhile, the wiener dogs had merrily greeted us at the door and were now dashing about the apartment, gathering up toys in the hope someone might feel inspired to play with them. Having been warned about our patient's demeanor, I walked into the bedroom where she was seated on the edge of her bed. I did my best to coax her into the ambulance before Keith had a chance to commandeer the situation and start in with whatever life lesson he had prepared. I explained as evenly as I could that she was on a police-initiated mental health hold due to her derailed suicide attempt. She really didn't have a choice in the matter. She had to go to the hospital with us right now. The girl cast one baleful look at me, tilting to the side as she did. She rocked slightly and almost fell off the bed, but she caught herself, her air of disdain never diffusing, as she righted her posture and addressed me the same way an impatient queen might address a dim-witted servant. I'm not going anywhere, she said. I know my rights. I figured as much, I replied. One should note that saying, I know my rights to any emergency responder is like saying, I double dog dare you to tie me up and forcibly drag my snotty ass out of this room. Because as I turned and walked back into the living room to have a little powwow with the police, I had absolutely no doubt that we were going to have to do exactly that. So, rather than stand there and try to reason with an abusive suicidal girl who was barely sober enough to hold her bed down with her ass... I left. The fire department had arrived by then, and they were all kneeling on the kitchen floor making the acquaintance of the wiener dogs who were now wiggling around on their backs begging for a tummy rub. So what's the story? The fire lieutenant asked me, looking up from his squeak toy tug of war. Well, she knows her rights, I shrugged. The lieutenant's head snapped up in attention, his expression shifting from one of bemused delight to that of a thunder-eyed bull who was about to charge the red cape I had just waved in his face. Does she now? 
he said, rising to his feet. Sure does. Well, he huffed, squaring his shoulders. I guess we'll just see about that. Five minutes later, seven of us were wrestling the girl onto the stretcher as she hollered and flailed about, blearily trying to bash us in the head with her clenched fists. She insisted we couldn't just take her out of her own home like this. Her parents were lawyers. She would sue. And of course, every now and then, she would remind us that she knew her rights. The end effect of her tantrum being that every time she screeched that particular phrase, another gush of adrenaline coursed through the firefighters' bloodstreams, ramping up their determination to prove who was really in charge here. After a while, she changed tactics. Reality, it seemed, had finally punched a small hole through the haze of benzodiazepines that shrouded the girl's mind. I suppose she realized that she couldn't overpower four firefighters, two paramedics, and one police officer all by herself. Nor were her wiener dogs coming to her aid. Quite the contrary. The dogs were gleefully taking in the whole scene like a couple of rednecks at a UFC cage match, occasionally barking their encouragement for one side or the other. Perhaps it was their barking that put the idea in her head, because for a moment, the hateful little shrew calmed down, looking long and hard at her two pets. Look, she declared, I'll go, okay? I'll go. Just put my dogs in the bathroom before we leave. We ignored her request and took advantage of the lapse in the struggle, tightening the seatbelt around her torso as we wheeled her towards the door. Just take care of my dogs! Take care of my dogs, you heartless bastards! She was shrieking again, but not out of concern for her dogs. See, it was a stalling tactic. It was a ploy to see if she could manipulate us into doing anything she said. Once she got us to acquiesce to any request, that demand would have quickly been followed by escalating pleas to attend to an endless list of tasks. Next, we would have had to turn out all the lights, then unplug the microwave, then water the plants, then pack her a suitcase, pick up her boyfriend, stop by a drive-thru, and so on and so on. She had just screamed at us for the last 20 minutes. No one was in the mood to play, Simon says, and our journey out into the night continued uninterrupted. When this desperate appeal didn't work, she started reaching out and knocking over lamps and chairs. She dug her fingernails into door frames, whipping her head back and forth in agony and wailing for her beloved dogs, who just between you and me looked kind of relieved to see her go. Up until this point, Keith had remained more or less quiet. But the contrived display of concern for her wiener dogs and her allegation that we were a bunch of ruthless, animal-hating brutes finally tipped Keith over whatever edge of professionalism he had been teetering on. Oh. My. God! Keith hollered, stepping forward and grabbing the railings on either side of the stretcher so he was hunched over and literally nose-to-nose with our patient. You were about to kill yourself with your dogs loose in the house. Who the fuck do you think would have put them in the fucking bathroom then? The girl's tantrum lost a little momentum. Keith's irrefutable logic briefly distracted her. Besides that, he went on, happy to drill his point home now that he had her attention, do you know what happens when people die with their dogs in the house? She eyed him warily. Obviously curious, but also uneasy at the fiendish delight in Keith's eyes as he spoke. As for Keith, he was clearly relishing the punchline and deepened his voice a couple of octaves as he delivered the verdict. They eat you, he growled. 
Your dogs eat you. Her eyes widened as she stared Keith in the face for a moment before glancing to either side, hoping either the fireman or I would crack a smile and betray the ruse, but it was no joke. We could all verify the authenticity of Keith's claim. I've walked in on week-old decedents who didn't have the foresight to install a dog door. Bits and pieces of them are missing. The sad truth of the food chain is this. Dogs are scavengers. They will eat you. Somewhere between fetching your slippers and playing dead, Fido is secretly wondering what you taste like. Sadly, delivering this ghoulish revelation wasn't enough for Keith. He kept going. A week from now, Keith was saying, when someone finally started to notice the smell, the police would have to break down the door, and your precious fucking dogs would have been so crazed and insane from eating you, they would have attacked the police, and the police would have had to shoot them. The patient's forehead rumpled in confusion. You guys shot my dogs? she asked, apparently forgetting that seconds ago her wiener dogs were toddling around at the feet of the firemen, utterly content and not at all frenzied or blood drunk with a craving for human flesh. Nobody shot any wiener dogs, I blurted out, trying to regain some measure of control over the horror movie Keith was directing in this girl's head. Nobody shot anyone. Keith, shut the fuck up. But by then it was too late. The seed had been planted and the idea had begun to germinate. Mercifully, the girl was too aghast at the alleged capping of her wiener dogs to be any more trouble on her way to the hospital. But two hours later, as Keith and I were sitting in a parking lot and waiting for our next epic debacle, the supervisor's vehicle pulled up and started circling shark-like around our ambulance. It was our shift captain hanging out the driver's side window yelling, tell me you didn't shoot anyone's wiener dogs. Fortunately, the story was too amusing to our supervisors to warrant any disciplinary action. All levity aside, I hate suicide. And as I stood there on that day with a buzzing phone in my hand, wondering if my friend Christina was going to live or die, I hated it even more. In truth, I don't know what I would have told her if she hadn't hung up. Fortunately, her mom got to her and she got the help she needed and she's still around today. I have to admit, I don't imagine it would have helped if I had told Christina about how people look when they attempt suicide. But what else did I have? I've never really come across a suicide that I could get behind. These people with their heads rammed full of tarry black misery and their ears packed with rain clouds and their eyes blurred with suicide's grimy fingerprints. I just can't validate what that crazy bitch has been telling them. I've never seen suicide leave anyone dignified or peaceful, whether they succeeded or not. When I look at the faces of people who have killed themselves, they don't look relieved or tranquil. They look abandoned. They look trapped. They look like they realized in the final seconds of their life that they have been lied to. I've collected skull fragments off of basement floors cut limp bodies down from light fixtures, and I shudder at how that crazy bitch managed to convince them that this was their only option. I see people who have been listening to her. I can see her nail marks down their arms, and I know they've been dragging her around with them for a long time. Sometimes she convinces them that having her around actually feels better than being alone. Suicide is the devil's best salesman. 
She gets you alone and starts talking, talking, talking until what she's saying sounds reasonable. It sounds right. That crazy bitch even comes by my place every now and then. She wears that scarf she knitted out of bad dreams and those headphones that play the songs of extinct animals. She likes to talk to me about what my life should have looked like and everything I should have been if everything had gone according to plan, which it didn't. She tries to remind me of all the painless and easy ways I know out of these problems because I do. I know the route off this map. She tells me I know how to get out of this. She scrapes at the door and carves my bad memories into the doorframe so I can't leave my home without passing beneath them. I get it. I hear her too. If I had thought to tell Christina anything that day she called me, that probably would have been best. That I know how it feels. But you have to stop listening to that crazy bitch. You deserve better than how she will leave you. You are more than what the world will think of you when they find you. You have to believe me. She's got nothing for you. So there you have it. The, um... I don't know, the <laughs> suicide as viewed by a paramedic slash deputy medical examiner. Um, retroactive trigger warnings, I talked a lot about suicide in that, and I hope you don't hate me for it, but if you do, it wouldn't be the first time people have hated me for lots of reasons, and I'm comfortable with it. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't feel like I really made fun of suicide, but I mean, it's just the human condition is inherently ridiculous. And I, if you're contemplating suicide, I certainly hope that that may have done something to talk you off of that ledge. But if it did not, um, I can connect you with the National Suicide Hotline. And that number is 1-800-273-8255. Help is available if you need it. Um, if you want to contact me and tell me that you're offended, <laughs> you can feel free to do so. Uh, as always, you can reach me at deadmensdonuts at gmail.com. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you can view photos, memes, and all kinds of weird stuff on Instagram, Dead Men's Donuts on Instagram. Um, that is also where you can find this week's Cool Art Corner. And this week's Cool Art Corner is a woman named Marissa Rand. On an Instagram, she is Scullery Gram, so S-K-L-L-E-R-Y Gram. And she makes these incredible incandescent sculpture type things. They're like resin casts of crow skulls and cat skulls and magpie skulls. And they are cool as fuck. You should take a look at them. 
I really, really want to buy one, but whenever anything goes on sale, it sells out almost instantly. So I might be shooting myself in the foot by, um, yeah, by telling you guys about her. But her, her artwork is just so fun and it's so weirdly morbid and cool and morose and I love it. I love it. I really, really want one. Um, so shout out to Scullery Graham and you should take a look at her. Um, other places that I can be found are, uh, if you want more random stories about my adventures with mortality as a deputy medical examiner, you can find those at www.deadmensdonuts.com. That is my blog. And last of all, if you are, I don't know, I guess it's, um, Gen X and older, I don't know, the young whippersnappers have abandoned Facebook, but I'm on Facebook at Dead Men's Donuts slash Society of Survivors. As always, intro and outro music was done by Vi the Fiddler. Vi Wickham can be found at vithefiddler.com. That's V-I the Fiddler. Uh, he has a, a new album out on iTunes, Swinging at the Savoy, so you should check that out. And also... Our, my, our, me and my dogs. Our logo was done by Tasha Zuniga, and you can find her on Instagram at Art of Obscura. I hope you will join me for my next interview featuring a survival story next week. Uh, it's a good one. It's about a friend of mine who nearly died. Well, she did die. She died twice, actually, in an auto accident. And I just really want to want to do a good job with that interview so it's taking a while to edit but join me next week here at the dead men's donuts slash society of survivors podcast <sighs> buck up everybody uh, the the global pandemic it's it's something's got to break soon the presidency's got to break soon the civil unrest has got to break soon we're going to get there. Um, but in the meantime, this is Grace Baudino signing off.